We are gonna roll right into our message time this morning. We're doing our study in the book of Acts. We're in a new part of this called Trouble in Churchland. It's part two of our Acts series. We've changed it up a little bit just so it doesn't get stale and old with all the graphics and videos and everything that we do. And we really are in a new section of Acts where we're starting to deal with some conflict and divisions within the church. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11 today. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you want to. Uh, Before I get into that, uh, if you're new, my name is Adam. If you didn't know that already, I'm one of the pastors here. And I would love to meet you after the service. I met uh, several visitors in the early service. Would love to connect with you. Also, we want you to get plugged in and connected to this church. So if you're new and you're not yet part of some kind of a group, we believe that real church life happens in circles, not rows. So this is great. This is the gathering of kind of the regional church that calls this place home for worship. But we really want you to be connected with people that you can do life with and have all the one another's that the Bible talks about. So we encourage you to go to efree.org slash groups, find a group there or email groups at efree.org and uh, let us know how we can help you get connected with a group of people that you can go through life with and study. God's word with and have discipleship and accountability that's so important for us. Also, if you're new, efree.org slash connect will give you a chance to let us know that you're here and serve you in whatever way we can and get in touch with you. So please do that. And the last thing I want to mention before I get into the message is something we don't actually talk about a lot in the services here. We used to have a dedicated time for it. That went away with COVID. And I don't know if we'll necessarily bring that back or not, but it's just our giving. And your giving here is what supports all the ministries that happen here. At the end of each service, what we do now is we have our ushers with bags at the doors. So you can give as you leave if that's convenient for you. Or what a lot of people do now and why it may not really be necessary to bring back space in the service dedicated to this is a lot of people now give online. And you can go to efree.org slash give and do that. And the thing is, we don't bring up giving a lot because we don't want to be one of those churches that's like always asking for money. But it does take money to make the ministry function. And this is actually a biblical thing that God has designed for his people to take a portion of their income, provide for the the work that God is doing. If God wanted to, he could just write us a blank check. But as he so often does, he chooses to work through his children to provide the resources necessary for his kingdom and the ministry that he wants to build. So we thank you, those of you who give regularly. If you've been coming to this church for a while and haven't started yet, go to efree.org slash give and start supporting the, the church that I hope you call home. Well, let's dive into our message for today. And as I often like to do, I want to start with a bit of an illustration. So we're going to go back all the way to the 15th century and a guy named Johannes Gutenberg, who didn't invent the printing press, but he definitely uh, revised it and innovated with it and improved it in a great way and then made it public and popular and available. Now, when the printing press became popular because of Gutenberg, there were actually a lot of people that were opposed to this. They did not like it for a couple of reasons. One is they thought that this would lead to a decline in handwritten manuscripts, you know, the beautiful ones with the art on them and everything. They were afraid the printing press would take those away. They were also afraid that the printing press would mean a loss of the general public's calligraphy skills. I'm just curious, how many of you are really good calligraphers? Anybody here? Okay, so I think they were right about that concern. The printing press and all the other technologies that have come afterward, yeah, that was a valid concern. I'm not sure which one was was better or worth it. Another fear was that the printing press would result in information being available to the masses, and that might weaken the power of the church and the ruling class at the time. So that was a big concern about the printing press. Fast forward to the 19th century, and the widespread use of steam power 
was now a concern for people because they thought it would lead to the displacement of workers and the loss of a lot of jobs. In fact, it was thought at the time that you could make steam power do so many different things that manual labor would become extinct and no one would have manual labor jobs anymore because steam power would replace it all. Now, steam power did replace some jobs, but of course it created other jobs and whole new industries and new ways of working that were never thought of before. In the 20th century, the internet brought about similar types of concerns, including concerns about privacy and cyberbullying and addiction and other issues. And those are valid concerns, and those are issues that still plague us today. But of course, the internet also brought about this revolution in knowledge and accessibility of knowledge to people and the ability to learn and grow and improve in ways we never thought of before and new skills and tools and new types of jobs that it brought about the connectivity that we can have with each other even if we're not in the same area. In the 21st century, there is another innovation taking place today that has led to a lot of concern, and that has to do with artificial intelligence. AI-powered technology has actually been around for a long time. It's baked into a lot of things you probably use already, but you don't notice it. It's kind of underneath the surface. In the last six months especially, it has surfaced in a big way, specifically with language models like ChatGPT and with graphics engines like MidJourney and Stable Diffusion and others. And in fact, all of the images that I just showed you were generated by AI through me this week. None of those were real photographs. Those were all fake. And all I had to do was type in, show me a bunch of guys in the 80s with a computer and some of them are smiling, and it, boom, spit out this image that it would be very hard to tell that's not a photograph. It's a little scary, right? And it's led to lots of concerns about AI. Just to give you a, a, a bit of an idea of what this can do, let me show you some more images here. Here's a picture of a beautiful watercolor painting of a sunset, which is gorgeous. That was done by AI. Here's a picture of someone painting a watercolor, which is the exact same prompt. It just thought, well, maybe you want a person actually in the picture. So it generated that hand painting a watercolor image. I thought maybe it'd be fun to see a chicken in armor. So here's a chicken in armor. And you can see how it even like adapted the armor to be anatomically correct to the chicken. I love that. thought maybe we can make it better. We can. Here's another chicken with better armor. Even like custom little, you know, shoe plates down there. It's fantastic. I love it. Um, it can also make really cool illustrations. So I thought, well, what about a teddy bear looking out the window and it's raining outside and an illustration form like you'd see in a book. And there it is. I mean, that's an incredible AI generated art. I just made that this week. And then I thought, well, what if we make it a photo, not an illustration? What would that look like? So here's a teddy bear. That's not a real photo. That's an AI generated image that I implemented or initiated um, that is looks like a real photograph of a bear looking out the window. It's amazing. Now, my kids saw me doing this. My daughter, Addie, had an idea for a teddy bear image that she wanted to create, so she gave me the prompts, and this is what that looked like. There were a few other examples, and we actually started with a phrase that caused the AI to spit back, I'm sorry, but you violated our terms of use, and if you continue, you will lose your account. So we had to adjust some words from what she originally wanted, and that is what we ended up with. Just gives you a little window into what it's like in my house. 
And just to show you how quickly this is improving, so I'm gonna show you two pictures here. The first one is the Apostle Paul looking at the Parthenon, and this was generated using last week's version of the AI generator. And then the next one is this week's version of the AI generator. It's the same prompt. And so you can see with this picture, uh, what I told it was, show me the Apostle Paul looking at the Parthenon. And I gave it a few other little parameters, what kind of camera I wanted, that kind of stuff. And that's what it created. And it's really incredible. I mean, it's hard to tell that that's not a real picture. But this is not a message about AI. That's not the point of all of this. And I I do want to talk about AI. In fact, this last week, I spent a lot of time with a bunch of other pastors. And one of the major topics was the future of AI and the impact that will have on ministry and churches and what that looks like, concerns, opportunities, tools, those sorts of things. It's a fascinating conversation. So I think what I'm going to do is we're, we're about to launch the five questions podcast again. And if you want to sign up for that on our website, you can. We'll put that conversation in the five questions podcast and have some more discussion about that. But that's not why I'm bringing this up here today. The reason I'm bringing this up today is because it's a big paradigm shift. And we've been talking about paradigm shifts the last couple of weeks here. And that's what's going on in Acts chapter 10 and 11. There's this huge paradigm shift where something is new, something is different, and it raises some concerns, some valid concerns, I think. And I'll I'll try to explain that to you today to kind of help you see both sides of this story, how something that was always done a certain way is now going to be done a new way. And it's a little bit scary and it's a little bit different. And what do you do with that? How do you respond to that in a biblical way when when there's change happening and you're not sure if you like it and you're not even sure if it's okay? What are some steps that we can take that, that kind of are pulled from God's word that help us to navigate those changes. Or even if you're dealing with a, a person, a friend, a relative, and they're doing something or they've done something that you think, I disagree with that. That is wrong. That shouldn't be happening. How do you approach that with them? How do you engage with them on something that you think is wrong in a way that hopefully doesn't destroy the relationship? Even though maybe they're right, maybe you're wrong, maybe you're wrong, maybe they're right. You don't know. So in Acts chapter 10 and 11, God is opening the doors to the Gentiles to be part of his family without the prerequisite of them having to become Jewish first. And Peter, you learned last week, has already dealt with this issue. And he at first was concerned, but God overcame his concern with a vision. And he he took him into Cornelius's house. And he saw this this incredible evidence of what God was doing among non-Jewish people, among Gentile people. But the people back in Jerusalem, the believers in the church back there, they didn't see that evidence. And so they are going to be very skeptical and actually very judgmental toward what happened with Peter. In fact, they're going to be furious. How could this guy who's a leader in our church go against these regulations that we have about going into the home of a non-Jew and eating with a non-Jew? That's like, you don't do that. So why would Peter, this great leader of our church, just forsake those rules and go in and do that with him? They're really upset about this. So that brings us to our text for today. Look at Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Now, maybe you've had a time where you have heard about someone else doing something and you've been very bothered by it or offended by it or disgusted by it. Or you just think, man, how could they do that? That's so wrong. And maybe you've then later realized as you learn more information that actually 
they had a very good reason for what they did and you were actually wrong to judge them and maybe they were right or at least it adds more context to the situation to understand why they did what they did. I have had those kinds of times, obviously, many times. And yesterday I had one, actually, when I was in my office preparing this message and I heard a bit of a commotion uh, in the next room over, which is my daughter's room. And Addie was in there and I walked in and Addie had taken my Bluetooth speaker from my bedside table and I have a power cord that runs behind it and down and around and plugs in and all that. It's all kind of set up where I like it, you know? And she disconnected all that stuff brought it into her room and set it up on her bedside table and ran the power cable and set it up. And you can imagine my surprise. And I immediately launched into, what do you think you're doing? Taking my stuff, disconnecting it. And is it yours now? And she's in there rocking out to music with my speaker that she basically stole. And then my wife came upstairs And she goes, oh, yeah, I told her she could do that. And I said, okay, good job. Way to go. You you followed instructions. You did it very well. You didn't damage anything. You didn't electrocute yourself. That's a win. I realized in that moment that she was right and I was wrong. But I didn't start with a question. Hey, uh, was that a a good idea? Did you have permission to do that? I just kind of launched right into the accusation. And it turns out she had a good reason for what she was doing. The believers in Jerusalem did not start out in a great way with Peter. And we're going to find out why they were wrong. And they're going to realize why they were wrong. But I want to explore this at a little bit of a deeper level. So what I want to do is share with you four things that these believers did wrong in their response to Peter. And then we're going to come back around to that later and talk about a few things that we can do to try to do a better job when we encounter something that we don't understand, don't like, it's change that's different, or it's a person that's doing something that really bothers us. So four things that we can learn that they did poorly. The first one is that they missed the positive and they jumped right to the negative. They know about God's work among the Gentiles. They've heard about what happened, but what do they go to? Right to the negative thing. How could you, Peter? How could you go into their home? How could you eat with them? There's no like balancing thought here of, hey, great work with the Gentiles. Wow, God's working among the Gentiles. This is awesome. No, it's all about the negative. They missed the positive. And sometimes we get that way too. We allow the negative thing, which may really be a problem, to overshadow any kind of positives involved. And usually there are some positives in any situation that we can be thankful for, point out that's sort of a balance to the negative. Second thing they did is they didn't ask a question of genuine interest or concern. They just launched right into an accusation of judgment. Now, from their perspective, what Peter did was really wrong. Okay, so I understand that. They really think he was wrong to do that. But are there more gracious ways to enter into that conversation than just how could you? You entered their home, you ate with them, just launching right into the criticism. There's a lot more gracious ways they could do it. And it really comes back to this question. Do we care about the person or about the rules to the exclusion of the other? Some people care so much about the rules that they completely ignore the value of the person that's involved. And to the contrary, some people care so much about the person that they ignore the rules. Neither of those are biblical. God cares about the person and the rules. Where we mess up is where we focus only on the rules and not on the person. There's a way to care for the person in the middle of dealing with what we think is wrong behavior. There's a way to show concern and interest for them and not just care about the rules. To give them the benefit of the doubt. To find out what's going on behind the scenes. 
to see what led up to this incident or this situation or this change or this behavior. One of my favorite little quotes comes from Mr. Rogers, who used to carry around this slip of paper in his pocket that said this, frankly, there isn't anyone you couldn't learn to love once you've heard their story. Let me say that again. Frankly, there isn't anyone you couldn't learn to love once you've heard their story. What that means is there's always a backstory. There's always a context. And every time you encounter someone who you think, well, they're just an awful person, they're just miserable. And by the way, this is especially true for those people that you see on TV or online or in the news that you just sort of hate from a distance, but you don't know their story. You don't know their context. You don't know the reasons for why they are the way they are or what they believe today. And once you hear people's story, a lot of times you may walk away and say, I disagree with them, but I understand them a lot better. And you care about them as a person, not just about the rules. So maybe the believers in Jerusalem could have led with this. Hey, Peter, what was it that changed your mind about going into the home and eating with the Gentiles? Because we, we know you wouldn't normally do that. So what was it that changed? That's a question of interest as opposed to an accusation. I'm interested, Peter, in hearing your perspective on this. Or maybe they could have said something like, Peter, was it, was it challenging and difficult for you to to do that, because we know you wouldn't normally do that. So was that, was that a struggle for you to be willing to cross that threshold and go in there and eat that food? That's a question of concern, of care. It doesn't mean we agree with you. It doesn't mean we're affirming your decision, but we are caring about you as a person, not just the thing we think you did wrong. So they didn't ask a question of genuine concern or interest. They just made their accusation of judgment. Third, They were arrogant about their own understanding of God's word. This is where we're going to get into the history part. This is the part that I love the most. When you go back and see why are things the way they are? Where did this come from? You know, last week I gave some reasons for why God might have given restrictions about eating and eating certain foods. And so I gave you a few different examples of why that was. And I think it's probably some combination or all of those put together. Today, I want to talk a little bit more about the rule of not entering the home of a Gentile and not eating with them. Where did this come from? Why was this so important to them? Isn't this just a crazy, irrational thing for these Jews to believe in? Why would they be so strict? I mean, it seems very prejudicial that they would have this view. Let me explain it. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 14, God gives the Israelites the instructions for not eating unclean foods. And he lays out the list through Moses of here are the foods you can eat. Here are the foods you cannot eat. And at the end of that chapter, he says, there are all these animals that you're not supposed to eat, but you can give them to foreigners to eat. You're just not supposed to eat them yourself. In other words, God was not saying for all people everywhere, this is a universal rule. No one should eat lobster. That's not what he was saying. He was saying it's okay for the non-Jewish people to eat these things. That's up to them. But for you, because you're my special, holy, separate people, you can't eat them. In fact, you can even be a part of giving that to someone else because some Israelite might think, wow, God has given us this rule. Everyone should follow this. I'll be sitting by providing these things to a non-Jewish person. And God specifically says, nope, that's okay. I'm not making this rule for everybody else. This is a rule for you. Gentiles can eat that stuff. You cannot. And we talked last week about why that might be. But that's very important to remember that God specifically said it's okay for Gentiles to eat these things. It's not okay for Jewish people to eat these things. And it's even okay for Jewish people to provide them to Gentiles. Hold that thought for a minute. We're going to come back to it. Fast forward to Ezra chapter 9 and 10. Ezra the prophet tells us about a time when the leaders and the priests of Israel intermarried with pagan women who retained their paganism. 
So it's normal in Jewish history for someone who is not a Jew to become a Jewish person, to go through all the processes of doing that, to say, I'm going to serve the God of Israel, and that's who I'm going to follow. Ruth did that. Rahab did that. Many others did that. We have examples of other names in the Old Testament that are Gentile names, but intermarried and served God through the people of Israel. But in this case, in Ezra 9 and 10, you have all these leaders and priests who marry these pagan women who bring their pagan practices into Israel. And some of them even have kids. And by the way, when I say pagan practices, it's not like, oh, they just kind of have a little different view. It's like, no, these were into idol worship. Some of these may have been into child sacrifices. That's what the paganism looked like in the day. So these are terrible, abhorrent practices that God detests. And at this point in Ezra 9 and 10, they start to realize and get convicted, we should not have done this thing. How do we stop this from causing a bigger problem? How do we stop the ripple effect, the unintended consequences of what this will do among our people if now we have all these women and they're starting to have kids among us and then they get connected with our kids and they're not giving up their pagan practices? So how do we... How do we get back to God's chosen people that are kept apart from those types of terrible things? And they decide we're actually going to send those women and their kids away, which means they'd go back to their homeland with their people where they practice those kinds of things. And we are not going to allow that to be present in our society here. We're going to, we're going to keep this place clean and pure. Two things were very important to the people of Israel. You don't eat unclean animals and you don't marry pagan people. You don't allow those practices into the nation of Israel and into your family. So what happened in the next few centuries after Ezra? The rabbis and eventually the Pharisees decided that they would add some extra rules to make sure that they never crossed those two boundaries. You don't eat unclean animals. You don't marry pagan people. And they made some extra rules about this. So they said, don't go into the home of a Gentile. Because if you go into the home of a Gentile, there is a risk that you may want to marry one. And you say, well, that's kind of silly. I don't walk into somebody's home and now I want to marry them. But think about what this meant as a culture. If we decide as a culture that just none of us are going to do it, this is the rule. We don't cross that threshold. That means our young people are going to grow up in a society where we don't go into Gentile homes. That means our young people aren't going into the homes of Gentile young people and getting familiar with them to the point where they might want to marry. And so we create this barrier, this boundary that makes it way less likely that our young Jewish people will ever want to marry the young non-Jewish people. It kind of makes sense. Don't eat with Gentiles. This is, by the way, this is not speculation. There are actually rabbinical writings about these things and these reasons. Don't eat with Gentiles because if you eat with someone, you're going to start to develop some affection for them. And if we just all decide we're not going to eat with Gentile people, then there's no chance that our young people are ever going to be eating with young non-Jewish people and want to marry them. There's another reason, too, they gave. Don't eat with Gentiles. Don't go into their homes and eat with them. Because if this happens over time, and maybe you're really careful, and they're really careful, and they're really respectful, and they bring you food that, that you can eat, and they don't serve you unclean animals, but you get so used to it and so casual to it that one day they forget. And they bring you some food that's been prepared and it's not clean for you to eat. And you're so used to it that you don't think to ask. And then you consume it and now you've been defiled. And you've broken the covenant with God that you wouldn't eat those things, that you'd be separate. And so, as a whole society, we're not going to go into the homes of Gentiles. We're not going to eat with Gentiles. Not because that's what God told us to do or not to do, but to make sure that we never cross God's boundary. This was a very normal thing in Jewish culture. It was called building hedges around the law. 
here's God's law. We don't wanna cross that. So we're gonna build a big hedge around God's law and we're all gonna try to follow that so that even if we slip up on that hedge, we don't disobey God's law. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You can see why, okay, given all of that information, it sort of makes sense that you wouldn't want to do that. You, you wouldn't want to cross God's law, so we're going to build some extra protections in there. But now God's doing a whole new thing. Now God is breaking down. In fact, you can kind of see where this connects last week to the sheet coming down and the unclean animals. All this stuff is tied together in Jewish thought. The reason why that's the vision Peter gets is because the idea of the unclean animals is tied to going in and eating with Gentiles in their thought. The whole reason those laws exist partly is because of those unclean animal laws. And now God is saying the unclean animal laws are going away. And by the way, also that separation between you and Gentiles should go away too. The separation that that God really didn't even implement for them other than the intermarrying if they stay pagan. That separation that was a man-made thing, he's saying, I'm removing my restrictions, you remove your restrictions. That's why that was so important because God wants to create a new people that are united, that don't have those barriers that existed before. And instead of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem stopping to consider that these are man-made rules they're so concerned with, but they've grown up with them as far as they're concerned, this is as bad as breaking God's law. They, They may not even really be thinking about the difference. And so they make their accusations and their criticism and their judgment to Peter. Well, how, uh, oh, and then the fourth thing is they put their belief in the wrong bucket. They put their belief in the wrong bucket. If you've been around here very long, you know we talk about the buckets of belief, the four buckets of belief. And I won't give you a detailed analysis here. If you're new, you can go to our website, efree.org slash undivided, and you will find a whole series that explains the bucket of beliefs. But in a nutshell, some of our beliefs are essential, like the dogma of the gospel. How can you be saved? And some of our beliefs are very important, like the doctrine that we hold to as a church. And and we believe in that, but we recognize other people may disagree with some of our doctrine, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not saved. They're not Christians. Some of our beliefs are valid, but they're personal, like our convictions that God holds us accountable for, but we can't hold other people accountable. There are personal convictions. And some of our beliefs are personal preferences. For instance, I believe pretty strongly that one of the things our nation needs in the future is a broader college football championship playoff field. Four teams is not enough. I think eight or 16 is good because you've got the power conferences that always seem to get in, even if they've got a loss or two. You've got these smaller conferences that don't even have a chance because it's not a big enough pool to choose from. And to be fair and to create more fun games, I think we need a broader college football playoff. But you know what? If you disagree with me, we can still get along. That's okay, because that's just a personal preference that I have. Understanding the difference between these buckets of beliefs that we have, whether it's a preference or a conviction or a doctrine or a dogma, is so essential to getting along with each other and understanding how much do I prioritize this thing that we're talking about right now. The believers in Jerusalem took something that was really in the personal conviction bucket because their rules were not based on God's word specifically. They were man-made that pointed back to God's laws. They took a personal conviction and they treated it like it was an essential belief, like a doctrine or a dogma that Peter had to follow. So those are the four things they did wrong. Let's look at Peter's response to them. What did he say in response? Verse four, then Peter told them exactly what happened. He said, I was in the town of Joppa. And while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. When I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of 
tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds. And I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, I replied, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up into heaven. Just then three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where, I was, where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here accompanied me. So Peter's got witnesses with him. And we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. He told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and had told him, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. So notice here that Peter doesn't get offended by them as far as we can tell. He doesn't clap back with some accusation of them being judgmental or bigoted or Gentile phobic or anything like that. He just shares the story. He understands where they're coming from. He respects that they have a disagreement right now. There's conflict between them. But he says, let me share with you the background of how this happened and why. And then he says this in verse five. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. And then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here, just for a little bit of a a theology sidebar, you see this distinction between two kinds of baptism and, and how we saw it played out even in the timeline. You have spiritual baptism, which is the Holy Spirit coming upon these people. And then you have water baptism, which happens afterward. And then in verse seven, he says, and since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? And he's talking about then baptizing them in water, which is what happened in the story. And so what he saw, again, was that the Holy Spirit came on them. There was spiritual baptism. They believed in Jesus. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit at that point. Paul talks about that. And then they're water baptized later. Why? Because water baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. They had already received the Holy Spirit. Water baptism does not save you, does not bring the Holy Spirit upon you. That had already happened. We see a very clear instance of this here. Now, one thing I've observed in many churches is how good practices can often become rituals and rituals can often become traditions and traditions can eventually become idols. It happens all over the place. It started out as a good thing to do. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. And then it becomes this thing that we we do kind of normally. And then it's like, no, this is what we do here. This is how we do it here. This is our tradition. And eventually, if we're not careful, those traditions can turn into idols that we cling to, just like the believers in Jerusalem were clinging to something that did not come from God. It was a man-made tradition, and, and maybe at the time, a really good one, but they clung to it like an idol, even though it wasn't something God actually told them to do. Now, let's be clear. It's not wrong to be skeptical. It's not wrong to investigate, to, to say, I'm not so sure about that. Let's look into this further. It doesn't mean you have to accept everything right away. No, not at all. But we do have to be very careful about being judgmental when something is different or new, when we don't see any clear principle in scripture against it, some clear command. So now the people have made their accusation against Peter and Peter has responded to them. What are they going to say back to him? Look at verse 18. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. 
They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Now, mad respect to these Jewish believers for doing a 180 as soon as they realized they were wrong. As soon as they get this story, they go, okay, Peter, we, we get it. Yep, you're right, we were wrong. And they praise God for what happened. And I just love that. I love the fact that they were willing so quickly to admit they were wrong and holding to their traditional belief and that God was doing something new and they were gonna get on board with that. And they actually start praising God for the thing they were condemning Peter for moments ago. This week, as I was out in California with all these pastors, I was following along with our Bible reading plan and our devotional podcast. And uh, I was listening to Kevin reading from Matthew chapter 21. And it made me think of this exact kind of situation where Jesus tells this story about a man that has two sons. And to the older son, he says, go out and work in the vineyard today. And that son says, no, I'm not gonna go. But later he changes his mind and he actually goes and he does work in the vineyard. And then to his other son, he says, go. And this one says, yes, father, I will go. But he doesn't. He actually goes out and does his own thing. And Jesus asks the question, who actually obeyed the father? The one who said no, but then went or the one who said, no, I won't go, but then did. Which one? The one who said no and then went, or the one that said, yes, I will go, and then didn't. I got that wrong. I said the two same two things. And the, and the people who are listening say, well, it's the first one. It's the one who said he wouldn't go, but then he ended up going. And Jesus says, you know what? It's gonna be, it's gonna be easier for tax collectors and prostitutes to get into the kingdom. Because even though they have rejected God at first, if they repent and turn around, God will welcome and accept them again. And those of you who are religious, who outwardly have said yes to God, but behind closed doors don't actually obey him, you're the ones that aren't gonna make it. And what that teaches us is that God is standing there with open arms, waiting and welcoming people who have the worst past, the most baggage, the most brokenness in their life to accept them into his family. And these people in Jerusalem, yeah, they messed up. They made a mistake. They were wrong. They elevated this tradition into an idol. But then they figured it out. They turned around and everything was good. And that's a good lesson for us that God welcomes us back even when we make a big mistake. Well, I wanna close with a few points that you can take away with you to help you if you are dealing with some kind of a change that feels off, it feels weird, it might feel like this might be wrong. And sometimes we confuse our feelings for the Holy Spirit or we confuse our feelings for a principle of God's word. And we should be careful about that. Or maybe you encounter a situation with someone that's done something you strongly disagree with. And maybe it didn't even affect you or hurt you personally, but you just think what they did was wrong or their behavior is wrong, or it feels off to you. What do you do with that? So let's take those four things we talked about earlier, and we'll expand them a little bit and walk away with a few principles, kind of a step-by-step process for what can you do if you're faced with that kind of a situation. Number one, look for the positives and don't only see the negative. There are almost always positives involved in every situation. There's something you can point to and say, I can commend this, even if I still disagree with this. Number two, Ask genuine questions of interest and concern without rushing to judgment. Pause to think about the person, not just the rule, and ask questions to help you understand their story. Try to get to the, the why of whatever is bothering you in a, in a gentle, non-judgmental way before you start throwing out accusations. By the way, that's even more important with people that you're not talking to face-to-face. When you're talking with someone else about someone that you disagree with, can you believe what they did? We have to be very careful not to rush to judgment. 
We don't know the full story. Number three, be humble, even when it comes to your interpretation of God's word or of current events or of social trends. You may be right in what you're thinking. You, you, your instincts may be right that this is wrong, but we have to be humble about that because it also could be way more complicated and nuanced than you understand. And at the end of the day, this other person may be wrong, but maybe they have really good reasons for what they think. And it's understandable. And maybe in the same situation, the same kind of circumstances, you might do something similar. So we have to be humble about our approach to this. We, we have to be thinking about the other person and valuing, that as mu- valuing them as much as we do the rule. Number four, practice putting your beliefs into the right bucket. If you haven't already, I strongly recommend you watch the Undivided series. It's what tells you how the buckets work, how to put your beliefs in the right bucket. All of this comes from God's word, and it's actually something that has been practiced with different terminology for many centuries among Christian people and Christian theologians and pastors. But it's kind of, it's it's a fresh way for us to understand today. How do we make sure we identify what's essential, what's non-essential, how we can get along and be united with each other? Is this a dogma that I have to believe to be saved? Or is this a doctrine that the church should hold to for unity and fellowship? Is this a conviction that I should follow, but I cannot force on others? Or is this a personal preference? When you know how to prioritize your beliefs and your political views and your perspectives and your ideas and desires into the right bucket, it can lead to so much less stress and strife and so much more joy in your life, which is what God wants us to have. Number five, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Sometimes you go through all of this and at the end of the day, you realize they really are wrong. And there's a clear principle in God's word that talks about this and this just, this violates that. And so you do need to speak the truth. I'm not saying you accept everything, you test it, you can be skeptical about it. You you look to God's word for, for counsel and advice and other godly people for counsel and advice. And at the end of the day, if you need to speak the truth in love, tell them what it is and, and why, but, but let's, let's talk about how to do that. Just for a minute, we'll take a hypothetical situation. What if Peter really did something wrong? What if Peter comes back and what the Jewish believers have heard about is not that Peter went into the home and ate with Gentiles. What the Jewish believers heard about was that Peter actually walked into the home, went up to the family idol, bowed down and made an offering to it. What if that's what Peter did? Now would we have a problem? I think so. So if we walk through these steps that we've been talking about that are sort of the reverse of what the Jewish believers did in Jerusalem, what would that look like? Well, look for the positives and don't only see the negatives. Peter, I really appreciate your desire to be respectful to your hosts. There's a positive there. I mean, you wanted to be respectful to them and I can commend that. That's great. Ask genuine questions of interest or concern without rushing to judgment. Peter, could you share why you thought that was necessary in this case? I'm not saying anything about it right away. I'm just gonna, could, could you help me understand where you're coming from there? Be humble, even when it comes to your interpretation of God's word. Peter, I've searched God's word to make sure this isn't just my personal view or conviction. And I think it goes beyond that. Practice putting your beliefs in the right bucket. Peter, based on these scriptures, which I'm gonna show you right now, it seems like this was a clear violation of God's commands about idolatry. That's how I'm reading this. How do you read it? Speak the truth, or uh, speak the truth in love. Peter, because I care about you and I love you, I, I gotta tell you, I don't think this is what God wants you. I think this crossed a line. And I'm not here to judge you. That's not my job. 
God is the judge, I'm not. I'm here as your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ just to try to present to you where I think this may go against God's instructions. And I, and I want you to see that. And what do you think about that? And do you agree? Do you see now that this may have been a wrong thing to do? And, and can I help you in the future? Do you need someone to help you stay accountable for this if you recognize that now? And by the way, Paul actually had to confront Peter later on like this. So later on in the book of Galatians, Paul tells about a time where Peter got into trouble for exactly the type of an issue we're talking about today in Acts chapter 11. And just real quickly, what happened was Peter, when he was uh, in an area with Gentiles, would go into their homes, he would eat with them. But as soon as some new Jewish people would come into town, he would stop. He would stay away. He would keep his distance because he didn't want them to judge him. And you could say, well, he's got a little bit of PTSD from what he experienced in Jerusalem there. And so he would back off. And Paul came to him and said, dude, you're being hypocritical. You know this isn't a problem. You're now excluding and prejudicing against something that God has already said you shouldn't do. And so Peter actually had to be confronted on this very issue later on by the Apostle Paul. And then Paul wrote in Galatians 6, he says, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. One last thing I'll share with you. If you've struggled with these things in the past, maybe you've had these kinds of experiences and you have messed up and you've been offensive and you've been judgmental and you've been accusatory, realize that you're wrong, turn around, start over, praise God for whatever good that you find there. The Jewish believers recognized their mistake and they did a 180 and they said, we were wrong, you were right, God is in this, praise be to God. And maybe there's a time where you've kind of messed up a relationship or you, you've uh, caused strife or friction somewhere because you've encountered something that you disagree with in some way and you've actually damaged a relationship because of not following the, a good path to addressing that. It's never too late to turn back around and say, you know what? I didn't handle that the way I should have. And I'm sorry. Can we start over again? And the beautiful thing about our God is that he loves second chances. And he is more than happy to welcome the people with the most baggage and the most mistakes and the most sin in their life if they will turn around. That's what repent means. Turn from their sin and turn to him and follow him. And you can do that today. If you want to go deeper into this topic, there's a a unique study guide available to go with this. It's a, it's a discussion guide at efree.org slash discussion. And if you want some deeper conversations and some scenarios to think through for you or your family or a small group, that's available for you today at efree.org slash discussion. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray and then we'll close in a song together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for what it teaches us, Lord. And uh, it's interesting reading through these stories that happened a couple thousand years ago, how relevant they are to our lives today. So God, I want to pray for all of us that struggle sometimes with change and with things being different and, and with people that make decisions we don't understand, Lord, help us to be people of grace, to be people of truth, yes, but also people of grace. Help us to not only see the rules and the negatives, but to also see the positives and the people and to value the people, not just what we think should be done. I pray that you would make us into a church, God, that has that kind of a spirit to us, where we're just very gracious. We hold to the truth strongly, but we're very gracious with each other, even when we disagree. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for what you're teaching us through your word, and we praise you now together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.